This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Tabidi Anyabwile. I'm Ben Brophy. So we are now on the home stretch prior to our presidential election. And we have already covered a lot of topics that I think lay the groundwork for how we think about this stuff. We've talked about how we're going to, how we want to vote, how we want to think about voting. We've talked just last week about how churches do or do not bind our consciences on voting. So as we get into these last few weeks, we thought we would do a couple of episodes basic with, with, with sort of this basic title, what do we need from our next president? And we really want to talk about it in sort of two things. One, this week, we're going to talk about what do we need from our president by way of kind of leadership, politics, democracy, and I'll, I'll set the stage for that in just a moment. Next week, we'll sort of get into sort of thinking about the, the policy agenda then. What, what, what should be the next president's kind of priorities in terms of things they would do, things, laws they would want passed or policies they would want implemented. So the reason we, we thought we'd start with what do we want for the next president by way of leadership and politics. We've talked about character before. We've talked about tone. We've talked about kind of rhetoric. Um, as we record this, it is the kind of Monday after the Friday of uh, Justice Ginsburg's death and sort of all the things that have come out since then from sort of both sides of the aisle as, as they look at <laughs> this thing that is pretty rare, right? A Supreme Court vacancy due to a death <laughs> of like a, you know, sort of an opposite party appointee in an election year, six weeks before the election. And I think all of us were reflecting in looking at that, just how kind of high the temperature has gotten and is getting and how difficult and divisive uh, the sort of politics around it are. And this is from three people who all have kind of opinions on what should be done or shouldn't be done on this in this particular issue. All of us can agree, um, you know, it's, it's the rhetoric's already gotten pretty nasty, right? Um, you know, I think, uh, Ben, you pointed us to a David French piece about like the challenges, the division, the sort of almost cold civil war that's being fought between the parties right now, um, where, you know, on the one hand, some are saying we got to fill that seat sort of on the, on the right. And on the left, it's sort of, if you do this, like the revenge or the retaliation will be, you know, really, really bad, right? Like it's sort of the, all sorts of rhetoric in that. Um, so that's just one example. I don't want us to necessarily focus on that, although, although we can definitely talk about it. I think my general question for us is whether it is the Democrat or the Republican, hopefully, Lord willing, um, a president will be inaugurated um, on January 20th of next year. And what do we think we need from that president in terms of improving our politics, uh, really improving our political discourse? What are the things we'd like to see from that leader? Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take a crack. Uh, I, think, I, I think what I'm hoping for, this is one of the few times, maybe just because discourse, public discourse, uh, over the past four years has been incredibly heated both from from the president and from you know other figures as well uh, 
that I think the substance and the tone of, of the communications coming from the next president, whoever that may be, um, is actually really important. I'm, I'm, I have pragmatic leanings at heart. I tend to emphasize, you know, let's get, let's get things done. I, I don't care much about style points. Um, it's very American of me, but that is kind of my, my bias. Um, but for once, I think the rhetoric really, really, really matters. Um, I think it matters for a couple of reasons. Um, one, as, as Nick alluded to, um, the, yeah, I think Justice Ginsburg's passing, yeah, opened my eyes to some vitriol that I, I didn't know was there, which is hard to imagine at this point. It's hard to imagine that I discovered new levels of vitriol uh, coming from one side or the other. Um, so I think somebody, the next, the next president has to come in and say, I'm president, whether you voted for me or not, I'm your president. This is something President Obama said, this is something George W. Bush said. I think that's a message that needs to be delivered. Um, I think two, uh, somebody who's gonna be a unifier should also be thinking about racial divisions in this country. That is clearly something that is coming to the forefront for all sorts of reasons. And I think it's obviously important that that happens and continues to happen. Um, but the rhetoric I wanna hear from the Oval Office is not, you know, this thug did this, uh, or, you know, this Nazi cop did that. Uh, those, I'm not trying to make a false equivalency. Um, I think we've certainly heard rhetoric from the current president that, you know, is, is racially charged, which is putting it lightly at times. Um, and I think either Trump has to change that kind of rhetoric, uh, which is hard to imagine, or, or whoever wins, Biden, I guess would be the other option, but barring some kind of third party miracle. Um, Catholic Workers Party candidate? Yeah, sure. Um, should come in and, and, you know, yeah, recognize that the people who are being killed are citizens of this country and made in the image of God and should be talked about that way. So I think the messaging that we hear, how we talk about victims, um, I, I pray recognizes the Imago Dei in those people. I think it, it would help. I think it would help. Um, and then third, I suppose I'm really hoping that the next president uh, has a stern talking to with their party, whether that's the left or the right, and says, I know from 2016 on, we've been in unusual times with uh, a bombastic president who uses Twitter as a weapon. And I, I know the temptation from the left and the right is to punch back or to amplify that kind of nastiness. Um, but I, I'm hoping the next president uh, ends that and says, we're going to return to some norms in the way we talk about one another. Um, again, recognizing the Imago Dei in those people. But I think also, you know, um, yeah, I think there's, there's incentives to be really mean uh, to the other side, uh, particularly on social media. Um, and I'm hoping that the next president uh, will kind of push back against that and just say, you know, for 
for let let's be you know we can disagree um but we shouldn't hate one another uh so i'm asking for a lot of style uh, a lot of uh rhetoric that cools temperatures instead of raises it um and maybe we'll talk about this at the end i'm also praying that that's the distinct witness that the church can have because right now it appears to me that the church is is emulating the world in terms of its rhetoric on these things um but i think that when you have somebody who's winsome and gentle and speaks the truth in love even when they disagree uh that's still attractive now some people are going to hate it regardless uh but i think for kind of starting to bind the social glue that holds us together i'm really hoping for some of that that high-minded rhetoric i mean think of um you know president obama's 08 campaign or george w bush's speeches after 9-11 like things things of this sort that kind of tries to glue us together instead of constantly creating an us versus them dynamic so yeah that's what i'm hoping for um not a lot of policy uh ideas there um but i think it that's for next week that's fine this is yeah what do you think uh as as is so often the case my my mind runs to ezekiel 34 and um, the word of the Lord that comes to the shepherds in Ezekiel 34. Uh, in the context, of course, um, shepherds here in Old Testament Israel are the civic leaders. They are the kings, the governors, things of that sort. In the, in the fullest swoop of scripture, of course, Jesus becomes the chief shepherd uh, and pastors become the under shepherds. But uh, in the Old, Old Testament, this is speaking pretty directly to um, the responsibilities of, of, of government leaders. So Ezekiel 34, beginning in the middle of verse 2, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. I mean, they, came, they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. That, of course, is the Lord's chastisement of the civic leaders in Israel, but I think it's a pretty good um, photo negative of um, what we should hope for in a leader. And when I hear Ben uh, speaking about the things that he was speaking about, my, my word for much of what he said is pastoral. Um, we, we actually need a leader who's pastoral in these ways. I think our country is scattered. I think it's I think it's injured. I think it's bruised. Um, I, I think we do have a situation where the fat get fatter, the lean get leaner, um, the rich feed upon the poor. Um, all these things that are sort of spoken of here, I think they have their equivalents in American society. And I think what we want, what I want, what I long for, um, is a leader who would be a true 
in, in a government context, in a civic context, would in that context be a true watchman uh, who would bind up the broken, you know, heal the injured, who would go gather the strays. So those, what's important about what Ben is saying in terms of, you know, a president who's saying, I'm, I'm the president of the entire country. I, I, I want to serve you even if you didn't vote for me. Well, that, that is a rhetorical way of going to get the strays, of, of going to people who feel disaffected, um, people who perhaps reject the candidacy and, and now reject the presidency and say, no, 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 we, we're, we're Americans. We're all Americans. Uh, I'm, I'm coming to gather you um, and to keep us all in this American fold, if you will. Um, so I'm looking for, uh, longing for someone who has that kind of shepherding instinct and shepherding ability, uh, who, who strengthen the weak, who, have, who has a particular regard for hurting people. And uh, I just think they're hurting people all across all the aisles uh, in this country. And um, we need someone who can put a salve on that, who can be a balm to that. Mm. So let me, um, let me push on that a little bit for both you guys. And the reason I'm gonna do this is because one thing I'm worried about is, is there something will the system allow our next president to do that, right? Like, and I mean this in the sense that if, if I were to sort of look at um, the kind of rules set out in our constitution, and if I were to look at sort of what they, what powers, et cetera, they grant to the different branches of government, one argument you could make is that the only reason our country got along for its first sort of 200 years is because people added onto those rules a set of norms and principles and ways of working, right? Like that went above and beyond the rules, certain courtesies, certain things, just to give an example, right? Like the, the Supreme Court stuff we're talking about, like it was routine until 20, 30 years ago for Supreme Court justices to be confirmed with like 80 or 90 out of 100 votes, um, almost out of courtesy to the president making the nomination no matter who the person was. Um, and uh, that's just obviously not true anymore. We're all sort of counting whether the pre this president can get to 51 votes on this particular, you know, whoever, whatever nominee he puts forward. And um, I think that, um, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're, we're reducing it down so that all that's left is the plain letter of what the law allows me to do. And it seems like the plain letter of what the law allows me to do is is a recipe for just maximizing and pressing your own advantage to the disadvantage of the other side. Um, you know, I'll, uh, and, and, and I think that it's, I wonder and worry whether the sort of structures and incentives in our system will allow a leader to do that or what it will take for the structures and incentives of our system to allow a leader to do that. Um, now, adding on to all this is everything you guys were just saying about kind of rhetoric and social media and everyone has an opinion and it's all out there. Um, but, but what should even a well-intentioned next, pre next president who wants to change the pattern, how are they going to deal with that stuff? Yeah, that's called leadership, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, I mean, if, if you think the Trump presidency has been a, a pretty total disregard for norms and conventions, um, that's a leadership of a sort. 
right? Uh, and it takes a kind of strength, a, a, a sort of strength uh, to be able to do what he's done. Now, I think it's, I think it's um, been damaging in, in profound ways, but, but that is a kind of leadership. And, and what I think we need is a leadership that, that goes the opposite direction, right? That goes in a healthier direction with a similar kind of brawn, with a similar kind of um, steel backbone, right? So to Ben's point about speaking to your own party, about um, accountability, about um, a, a sense of, of fair play and righteousness and things of that sort. That, that's probably the most prophetic politics right there, right? When, you, when you're speaking to your own tribe about how it should be setting a standard for um, what is right on behalf of the country, right? Instead of this, well, they did it then, now I'm going to do it. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. And what we need is the kind of uh, integrity that will say, okay, I could turn the, turn the knife here. It's my turn. I'm in power. I can strike back. We need the kind of integrity from someone to say, but I'm not, because it's not right. It wasn't right when they did it X time. It wouldn't be right for me to do it now. Here's the standard. Here's what righteousness requires. Um, and, and that's what we're going to do. Even if we lose some things or we don't get to do as much as we would have done, um, out of a sense of this is our shared country and we need the restoration of high ideals and to call ourselves up to those high ideals um, for the sake of our for the sake of our democracy, for the sake of our country, um, for the sake of everyone's well-being. Because at the end of the day, I, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a country where in some ways it's safe to lose, right, in our politics? Where, where, where we can lose with dignity um, and, uh, and, and where our, our sort of, our, our neighbor who, who rules where, where we would have but didn't still rules with a sense of neighborliness, uh, with a sense of love your neighbor. Um, and so, I, you know, if, if, if it would be kind of the Lord to raise up a cadre of politicians from the highest offices down um, who have a, a real love your neighbor ethic and instinct um, and therefore seeks to set some high standards for um, how they lead and um, what they press toward, how they use the levers of power. I think what's, what, what it presents difficulty um, is, I mean, we talked about political idolatry within the church, but talk about political idolatry outside of the church, right? Like it's, it is gripping hearts and so, you know, that this means demonizing the other side. This means um, politics is totality of everything. It's totalitarian, not in the sense that that's the government system we function under, but rather it is everything. It is yeah. the most important thing possible. Um, and I, I hope that one of the things Christians can do is live with the assurance of God's sovereignty and and point out that our hope is not in princes, um, but, but it is in God. And so if, if Biden or Trump or whoever your preferred candidate loses, like for a Christian, we shouldn't be rocked by that. Um, I don't think we're doing a, a good job of that right now. But if we think political idolatry is bad inside the church, which, which it is, I mean, I, it, it's, 
it's understandably just as bad, if not worse, outside of the church in the sense of this has become, you know, zero sum. Uh, and it's, it's really difficult to have a, a well-functioning democracy when that's the kind of, of rhetoric we land in. Yeah, which, which I think is an argument for um, Christian vocation in, in public service. Yeah, but a Christian, it's got to be Christian vocation that's uniquely Christian. That is, so, exactly. and I know you agree, but it's, mm-hmm. we have, we all know a lot of Christians who are in public service. And I think, you know, I, I trust that the Lord is working through them and they're doing the best they can. But for, for the really, the really public faces of that, like I, yeah, they, they need to be uniquely salt and light. Um, totally agree. Places. You know, the, and it's funny, an image that just came to my head is the only time, well, you guys can disagree with me on this, but you guys remember in February, um, the speech that Mitt Romney gave before he cast his vote on impeachment? I don't know if you guys watched it or read of it, but. I certainly remember, yeah. I don't remember, I didn't listen to the speech, but I remember that. Yeah, I, I mean, I went out of my way to listen to it because it was the, um, it was the one, um, obviously he was the one Republican who voted to convict, which had never happened in history, right? That a kind of a, a senator of any party had voted to convict a president of their own party. And so that he made history in doing that. Um, and it was the sort of thing that was going to get him a lot of flack from his side. Um, and he talked about that. And he talked about how in the end he's, I mean, it's funny, he does not share our faith. So don't want to, disclaimer, I'm not <laughs> endorsing that at all. Um, but I guess the thing that struck me about it was his invocation of his relationship with God as a, as a way of giving him strength to do something that he knew was difficult um, is something I actually don't see from sort of politicians who do share our faith, right? Who do have those beliefs, right? Like I, I, I rarely see those sorts of examples from, you know, kind of people who are believers who are in there in public service. We know a number of names of people, most of them Republicans who are kind of serving, but we're not seeing any of that right now. Um, so, and, and, and so, yeah, it strikes me that like, as we think about Christian service, like Christians should be the ones behaving counterintuitively here and there when they're in office. Not always, but often. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think of, I mean, there's examples I can think of who, who on occasion have done things that are really unpopular or cut against the power structures in their own party, um, but they almost pick their spot. It's almost as if they're making a calculation of, I can be brave here, but I can't be in X, Y, or Z places. And maybe maybe that's all, maybe that's all part of it. I don't know. Uh, maybe you are quiet on some things so you can be loud on others. I, I don't know, I'm not in that seat. Sure. I mean, so for some of them, I'm sure that's what they'll say. And maybe for some of them, that's what's true. And there's a difference between, I don't know, like a, like a, I'm trying to think what the different, like, like a um, Ben Sass, who's you know, kind of in the Senate and kind of probably doesn't, you know, like, like, I, I think that like, if he doesn't speak, if he picks his battles, I, I, I sort of kind of get that versus I think like Mike Pompeo is the guy's secretary of state, right? Like there's a lot more proximity there and it's harder right like to think about like yeah i thought of sass i thought of tim scott um yeah um and i think yeah i mean i think he's done things he's he's been loud about some things and and quieter on others um but 
Yeah. It does create opportunities for him, like introducing legislation on trying to change police brutality. Um, that legislation went nowhere, but that's not, yeah. I, if he were to say, I'm saving, I'm keeping my powder dry, as it were, for that, yeah. for that bill, okay, I understand that. Um, so I'm yeah. not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 I'm trying to put myself in that headspace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think. I think it's a good question for illustration, um, Nick, because I think often politicians will evoke their faith for things they want to do that are consistent with their party, right? It's, it's kind of on brand. Mm. But we, we, I can't think of any sort of faith-motivated political mavericks like a John McCain, right, who, who you know, uh, go wherever, who, who would go wherever he thought he should go uh on on principle um break with his party or or what have you um i i i don't they're not sort of ready examples that come to mind of that for me of of people who are motivated by their faith in that way um which is which is i want to regard that as strange as problematic because if we're keeping a close watch and step with jesus we should be having more instances where um, we find ourselves out of step with whatever our political tribe is, right? Um, so if we're Christians and we're neatly fitting with our political party as, as elected officials, as, as, as leaders, something's amiss there. Uh, something's off because I don't understand Jesus to be a Democrat or a Republican, right? There's, um, a, there's a quote from Romney that almost kind of like... Uh, gives the um sort of makes that language explicit right so the paragraph from his speech he says i am aware that there are people in my party and in my state who will strenuously disapprove of my decision and in some quarters i will be vehemently denounced i am sure to hear abuse from the president and him and his supporters and he says then does anyone seriously believe i would consent to these consequences other than from an inescapable conviction that my oath before god demanded it of me and um, I think that it, it's funny. We often say like, you know, like uh, we talk about Christian witness and this idea of like the only plausible explanation is because of God, because of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? And he's kind of laying that bare there. And I, I think there are fewer of those examples among believers in public service than I would like to see. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, so we, we, we got off on a little bit of a tangent there. Let's take a, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and when we do, I want to talk a little bit about sort of what this, what, what our calls for the next president mean specifically for the two men that are running right now. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Um, so I want to now talk specifically about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. 
and kind of what grade would we give them in terms of the way they think about unity? And I ask that as a serious question because I think the other thing I'm gonna ask is, what advice would we give to them if they find themselves taking the oath of office on January, regardless of what they've done in the past, right? So I will, I will give you sort of what I think are the best examples of sort of quotes from both of them about how they would pursue the project of improving our politics, right? So with Biden, I, I hesitate to say this, it's a bit of a straight, a straighter line than for Trump, but like this is literally a quote from his convention speech. He says, I'll be a Democratic candidate, but I will be an American president. I'll work hard for those who didn't support me, as hard for them as I did for those who didn't vote for me. That's the job of a president, to represent all of us, not just our base or our party. This is not a partisan moment. This must be an American moment. And if you hear the critiques of Biden from the left, it's basically, oh, this guy's going to cave. This guy just thinks it's like the old days. He's all chummy with the people in the Senate and he's going to get rolled over, right? Like, so, so I would argue that, you know, you know, he's getting the criticism from the left on that. That tells you something about kind of where he, his head is at. I don't know if it tells you where he's going to govern, but that's what he's saying. If I were to give you the most charitable inter interpretation of how Trump approaches it, there's, actually, there's a quote from his first inaugural address that I think probably best captures the best version of it. And the quote is, when you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. So in other words, the idea for Trump and kind of the nationalist vision is the way we unify is we unify around the flag, essentially, right? And and if you, I, I watched like all 10 hours of the Republican convention. Like, so like, I, I, that was definitely the theme, right? It was like, the thing that's going to unite us is respect for the flag, like patriotism, um, and other things like that. That's how we'll come together. And there is a little bit of a come over to my side, therefore come join this vision or else you're not part of it, which um, which is, I think, where, again, so, you know, you, you can, you can, you can make the sort of more divisive version of that as like, yeah, I mean, listen to the guy at a rally, and it's a lot more divisive than that. But at its best, that's probably my most charitable interpretation of sort of how someone like Donald Trump would approach the, the, the project of unity. Um, so what do you guys think? What do you guys think um, of how these two measure up in terms of the call you just made? Um, and then what advice would we give to them? either of them, if they're taking the oath on January 20th. All right. Um, well, I, I mean, I think, mm, I mean, I think, I think Biden Joe has been around for a long time. And so <laughs> his talking points are right in line with several, pre I mean, I already mentioned almost verbatim what President Obama and President Bush said. And so I think like, that's good rhetoric. I think he should use it. I think any president should use it when they're newly elected because that that stuff does that stuff does matter. Um, I mean, I think what 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 I what, my advice to let me frame this positively. My advice to Vice President Biden would be to keep the courage of your convictions there and don't let yourself be sucked into zero sum political warfare. Right. So. Um, which which he hasn't he has done that in the past he's a long history of service and he was willing to work with segregationists when it benefited him politically um he's he's done some stuff on supreme court nominations that are you know pretty rough um and, and so i think 
I would say like, yeah, listen, listen to the angels of your better nature on that one. And cause there's going to be elements in his party that are going to want, you know, scorched earth, like, you know, whatever it takes to win. Um, and so I would urge Joe to, yeah, st- stick by his, the courage of his, his convictions there, like that I'm president for everybody. I'm going to respect my opponents. Um, I'm going to take their concerns seriously. We might not always agree, but um, I'm not going to demonize them. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be after victory at any price. Um, go, so, go ahead. I was going to, I'm going I'm to push on that a little bit and be, and try to be specific. Okay. So imagine you're Joe Biden. Yeah. You won. Um, you also won the Senate. Okay. Uh, Donald Trump nominated the Supreme Court justice to fill Ginsburg's seat. And the Republican Senate, before it left and was replaced by the Democratic Senate, confirmed that nominee in like December, right? Um, And so you're Joe Biden, you're coming in. There is now a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court um, in which, and I'm I'm, I'm partly playing devil's advocate, but partly telling you what I think. (laughs) Um, There is now a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court, five of whom were appointed by Republican presidents who never won the pop, who didn't win the popular vote. Um, Popularity contest. Hang on. Um, <laughs> and for whom, like, they pushed this last one through in the lame duck, essentially, after having been soundly defeated at the ballot box. Um, your own party is screaming for blood. What do you do? You leave him or her. It's probably going to be her. I think you got to leave her. And I think you got you got to take the loss, you got to take that heat, and you got to spend political capital on it because to undo it means as soon as you're out of power, the right will come back just as hard, and then we are we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Like that's bad. Um, the time, yeah, yeah. It's, you pass a couple laws, the court strikes down every single one of them. What do you do? Pass them again, change the language, fight through the system. I mean, that's, again, this is easy for me to say. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sorry, I'm saying, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, what you're asking of a president-elect Biden, right, is... To put the country's interest above his political interests. Yes, that's what I'm asking. Mm-hmm. You're also asking that he probably not accomplish much. Well, I don't think that that's necessarily the case, like, not every law that a Dem- the Democrats are going to pass under a Biden administration is going to go up to the Supreme Court for review. Uh, Supreme Court doesn't review every case that's brought, and there actually has to be a real case out there in the world where somebody's harmed for the case to be entertained in the first place, and it takes time. So I think that's a little overblown. Um, I certainly think, but to yeah, to put myself in his shoes, there's certainly things like. Um, abortion concerns or uh, voting rights stuff or um, even campaign finance that are probably pretty big priorities for progressives. Uh, And so, yeah, that's going to hurt a lot. I mean, it could cost him re-election. I fully acknowledge all of that. I'm asking him to put country over party. And, and we can do it the other way. Like we can do it like should you know, let's, I, I don't know what the reverse of this is. I guess, I guess it would be like, 
Yeah. Whatever the, whatever the reverse of that is, a scenario I can't think of like immediately. Um, so it isn't a reverse of that scenario. What's right? that? Well, if, well, if Trump's reelected, I think what you'll find is he may or may not have the tools to do more, right? Because the Congress may not be entirely right. Wealthy, right? right. Uh, but we, he will have courts who will legislate his agenda, essentially. They have been and will continue to do so. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, they, they shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you reverse it. I mean, I think, I don't know what the reverse of that is. I, I, what I'm saying in general, so that's the advice I'm giving to Biden. Mm. Uh, the advice I'd give to Trump is like, be willing to lose on your priorities in order to bring unity. Mm. Uh, yeah. Trump, Trump is an oddball in the sense of like, uh, I don't mean... Like there are opportunities to get things done with him that you wouldn't have with a traditional yep. president. The rhetoric, I mean, I don't have much hope for the rhetoric short of legitimate conversion, which, mm. you know, like I, I pray for that. Hey, pray for that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's possible. Yep. Uh, the Lord can turn the King's heart like a water course. Like that is possible. Um, but on the actual policy stuff, like, you know, there's, there's a chance that he could, go out of his way to push police reform or mm -hmm. police, you know, work on police brutality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we've, we've run down this rabbit trail a long way. Um, yeah. no, so no, 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 no. That's, that's, that, that, that is the idea, right? Like I'm trying to think like, so there's a, there, it may very well be, Ben, you may be right. Right. Like, um, keeping policy roughly at the status quo with some exceptions may be a price worth paying right? To improve unity. Right? Yeah. I just, I don't have, I don't see either side making that calculation. Well, well, yeah, but no, but that's your advice to Joe Biden. And by the way, constitutionally, I mean that small C constitutionally, I do think that's actually where Joe Biden's instinct lie, right? Like I think you'll find him disappointing those who are calling for blood, even if the scenario I just described happens. Um, I don't, I hope, I hope that is the case. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think it's I think it's an interesting um, about your original question or about the the scenario you're pushing Ben with. Oh no, no, just my original question. You you yeah. comment on the scenario if you like, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm more just asking the same same question as before, which is you know advice. Uh, how do these two stack up, and what advice would you give them if they're taking the oath of office in January? Yeah, I I think I think the way you framed the two positions using the the, the sort of language that these two candidates have used and different public places of late uh, is, is really interesting. So, so Biden's appeal to, I'm going to be an American president, right? Uh, I, I think that's the right rhetoric. I think the difficulty is um, we, we've not seen a lot of presidents actually achieve that, um, really become the American president in a way that um, is, is sort of supported by you know, the, the vast populace, right? Um, so I, I think that's the right goal to set out for oneself. And I think to work to be that um, is, is what would need to happen, that Biden would need to match that rhetoric with his actions. Um, and that, and that's, that's the work, right? But I think it's the right, I think it's the right rhetoric. Otherwise, it's just another instance of shallow sound bites and cotton candy to an American populace that's actually 
quite jaded and suspicious uh, of politicians in general. Um, with regard to Trump and the appeal to nationalism, appeal to the flag, that scares me, honestly. Um, and it scares me because I think that nationalism so often runs um, in, in, in directions that are centered upon race uh, and, and ethnic pride mm. and things of that sort. Um, and, and so many people have already pointed to these kinds of issues, even with his campaign slogan um, from, from last time, you know, make America great again. Well, that, that's a great saying, but you know, a lot of it, how you understand it depends upon what point in American history we're talking about and, and who you're envisioning there. So I think his, I think for a lot of politicians who have gravitated toward nationalistic appeals, um, the, the presumptive audience um, is basically white Americans. Um, and so it becomes a thinly veiled, um, racialized, even at times racist um, kind of appeal. And I don't think that's, I don't think that approach to, to actually it's not patriotism, but, but that nationalism masquerading as patriotism um, is in fact, I think, harmful to the country, has been and will continue to be. Um, but now if he, if, if he could pivot to a genuine patriotism, mm. um, that would be huge. If, if he could, as Ben said earlier, call us to um, sort of act in accord with our better angels, if he could call us to um, a kind of unity across race, religion, creed, you know, natural origin, all those things um, that we talk about, if he could discover a glue that's, that's tackier, stickier, thicker um, than, than mere ethnicity, um, that would be a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, and I think a tremendous about face from uh, the effect of his rhetoric and actions in his first administration. Um, so I, I like the idea of an appeal to patriotism, but of course the best patriots, um, you know, they, they, they also are, are, are critics, are, 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 are sort of constructive critics of their country. Um, the best patriots, yes, sacrifice for their country, but um, also call their countries to higher ideals. Uh, and that's a, that's a kind of discussion that I think the country, and, and I think this administration, frankly, is impatient with, intolerant of. Um, so that to be in any way critical of America is to be, quote, un-American. Um, to sort of talk about the country's failures historically and to try and learn from them in the present is to quote, be un-American. Well, that, that's not a healthy form of patriotism. Um, and I suspect that if, if that's what it laps into, then that appeal to the flag, that appeal to a kind of patriotism or nationalism uh, will wind up actually deepening the discord and the division in the country rather than healing it. Well, and it's not, it's not too hard to see how that, how you can make a pivot like that. Um, I'm going to, I forget who, who said the quote, but the constitution is a down payment or a promise for all Americans that hasn't been made real, right? Hasn't been made tangible. I'm butchering somebody. Um, but if you were to come out and say like, you know, we haven't achieved um, the goals that our founders laid out, um, you know, buy things like the three-fifths compromise. Like it was a document that's flawed from its inception, but there's promise here, there's potential here, and we want to fulfill that for all Americans, regardless of 
race, creed, class, or color. Like, yeah, that's patriotism in a way that's inclusive instead of um, exclusive. Uh, and so he could, you, yeah, you could, you can still, <laughs> this is going to sound crass, you can still wrap yourself in the flag for all Americans instead of just, just 40% or, or whatever percent you're, you're trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take, let's take one more break and then I will share a couple thoughts of my own and then we'll look at wrapping up and implications for believers as well. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So during the break, Tavidi said, not only did we, he want to answer my general question about advice to the candidates, but also to answer my, my, my Biden scenario with uh, the, the scorched earth or not. Uh, so can you repeat the scenario the, real quick? The scenario was, you're Joe Biden, you won, you've got a Democratic Senate incoming, but before that Democratic Senate or you take office, the Republicans take up and confirm Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court um, you know, in December. And they do it in the lame duck after having been defeated at the ballot box. And you come into office and your party is screaming for blood. They're saying we must do something in response to this thing that was done to us. There's this basically 40 year majority on the court, right? For um, these conservative causes. Um, and we got to do something about it. Yeah. It, it almost takes you back to uh, Marshall and, and Jefferson in some ways, doesn't it? Jefferson comes in the office. There's some folks who should have been appointed, but the letters are still on uh, Adams. Is Adams' desk? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, this is Marbury v. Madison, right? Or right. no, no. Is it? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Somebody's uh, finishing their books, I see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it almost takes you back there. But, I, you know, if, if, I'm, um, if I'm in that scenario, uh, I think what I want to try and do is redefine the Supreme Court. Hmm. I, think, I think I want to attack the court itself um, and, and Congress itself in terms of its, its job and whether or not it's doing its job. Hmm. Uh, the, 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 the analog here, the analogy here would be to the civil rights movement. Um, Dred Scott, terrible decision um, that basically, um, you know, uh, favors slavery and, yeah. or excuse me, the, the um, you know, tainting, says famously, you know, the black man has no rights so the white man's bound to respect. So it just, it just reinforces a segregationist regime um, um, and an oppressive regime in the country. Well, it seemed like there would be nothing that anyone could do given that the Supreme Court had ruled in that way. But Frederick Douglass and others, um, Nick, your article that you sent around to us was nice on this, really just sort of questioned the legitimacy of the court itself. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that was right. Um, and of course, decades later, all of that's overturned. And so I think if, if you're president, you've got the bully pulpit. 
And in the executive, you have opportunity to cast vision for um, what, how government functions, what the, what the branches should do. Uh, and you have opportunity to take, take those branches back to um, precedents and roots and to recast them in terms of um, your, your vision for the country. And I don't know that we've had that kind of transcendent leadership. I don't know that we've had someone come into a crisis like that um, and, and just really school the country uh, and, and sort of reframe um, our branches and, and, their, and their missions, what they, what they are to be doing. I think that's the war I would wage rather than a narrower question of, you know, this appointment that happened in this underhanded way, so on and so forth. But, you know, that's an, that's an argument that could be had, but I think it will only deepen the sense of, okay, we need to do payback next time or some such thing. And it'll only leave me as president, you know, suffering the wrath of my own party, uh, who feels like, you know, we didn't bat for this or didn't bat for that. I just think you need a, a transcendent way of, of resetting the table um, and, and calling ourselves to a higher, to a higher standard. So this is really interesting. So there's the article that the media is referring to is something I sent to the two of you the other day. It's this, uh, it's from a very lefty magazine, Jacobin, but it's basically a short historical, but it's a short historical dive into basically Lincoln and the very early Republican party and their relationship with the Supreme court just before the civil war. Mm -hmm. um, and basically Dred Scott comes out in that decade, the 1850s, and they basically spend a decade attacking the court and saying, it's illegitimate. It is doing, it is overreaching. It is trying to entrench slavery. And by the way, the vast majority of the court's decisions have been conservative and reactionary, not the, the we, we all grew up learning about the Warren court. And that's like the one like um, sort of uh, exception to that rule. Most of the Supreme Court's decisions <laughs> over throughout our history have, um, have been anti-progressive actually in most, in, in most cases. And um, so, so they spend a decade kind of delegitimizing the court and saying, we're, we're, we're actually going to ignore some of its decisions if it's not, if it's, if those decisions are not right. Um, and we're going to sort of, you know, take it up in the, in the court of public opinion. If we get, if, you know, the voters can throw us out if they think we're wrong about that. There's actually another echo of that in the 1930s in the New Deal. I know most people know, you know, Roosevelt and the court for so-called, you know, the, the court packing scheme that he tries to enlarge the Supreme Court and he fails. His own party doesn't let him do it. What is less commented on is, number one, that court was striking down a bunch of his New Deal legislation. Number two, the sort of threat of court packing led the court to back down over the subsequent decade um, and to sort of start ruling differently. Um, and I'm sure we're causing a lot of pearl clutching among legal scholars who uh, like to pretend that the court is just an impartial arbiter of things. We all don't believe that's true. <laughs> um, so actually, there is something here around almost a, almost a, almost a judicial worship, cult of worship we have among our elite lawyering class. Like there, I think there was a, there was a moment in right after Citizens United when Obama and the State of the Union said, you know, the Supreme Court was wrong to make that decision, and that was a big deal <laughs> that Obama even said that, right? Like, and you know, Justice Alito's in there, he mouths, "That's not true. I don't think that's right." But the point is that like, well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you simply say, hey, this court, just like all the, the other branches of government is doing things I don't like. <laughs> and so I'm gonna say so. So I actually think Tavidi, that's a really good point. And it may be the more legit and sort of historically precedented thing to do if you find yourself with a hostile court. 
Um, I appreciate that, but I'm just learning from the lefty material that you send me and Ben. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Uh, but, but, but of course, our our uh, our our listeners will be pleased to that that was the Republican Party, the incipient Republican Party at the time of its birth, the anti-slavery party, right? That we would all have been members of if we were alive at the time, <laughs> like you know. So um, very different party. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Nick, you know who Matt Brunig is, right? Yes. He tweeted uh, over the weekend, the solution to all of this uh, Supreme Court stuff is simple. Uh, when the president comes in, they just say, I think Marbury versus oh, Madison yeah. <laughs> decided <laughs> and, act, and act accordingly. Right. All the judicial opinions are advisory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, okay, just to be clear, I'll, I'll, I'll say my one thing that'll you know be way out of the mainstream is, it's not a crazy idea. You and I, you, we, are, we were all going back and forth over the weekend about how the U.S. actually, we are unusual in how powerful our Supreme Court is, yeah. right? And how it has the final say uh, on these sorts of things short of, you know, the Constitution being amended. Um, so it's not, it's not, a, but, but the point there is that it's all about like what's legitimate for the court to do. And so sort of treating it as a political branch of government and sort of the way it de facto has been may very well be one piece of that. So I, I wanna give you guys my, my take on the whole, on the question I asked around like, what advice would I give to the candidates? And I, it's something struck me. I just realized that one thing the two of them have in common, that Biden and Trump have in common, is that if either of them is elected, either of them might very well be in their last term of office when they serve. Yeah. Right? Trump because of, of term limits, Biden because, you know, sort of open secret, he kind of plans on being a transitional figure and only serving one term. It's not a guarantee, but it does seem to be like in his circles, what is being said, he just doesn't say it publicly. Um, if that's true, then my advice to either person would be, you know, like you're in your last term of office, you've, you, you've fought your last election, you're never gonna face the voters again. What do you need to do for the sake of the country? right? What can you call forth in yourself? And that might look different for these two people, right? But there's a version of it, right? So if you're Joe Biden, I think you're right. Some of that is actually like, it's sort of like, you got to live with the constraints you're in, live in the rules of the system you're in. Don't like, one of the things I think Biden has been doing that's been interesting, if you guys look on his website, you'll see there was this whole thing about how it was like these joint committees of like Bernie Sanders people and his people, and they came up with the agenda together. And I actually think that as an intra-party exercise, that's actually quite important. It's like, how do I sort of build consensus within my own party about what our platform is going to be between sort of the moderates and the liberals? Let me try to bring people together. They came up with these recommendations. Now you need the next version of that, which is to say, if I'm president, what's the sort of thing, what are the things I can work with the Congress on? And by the way, there's lots of material there right? The material includes an unprecedented economic crisis, an unprecedented pandemic, a whole bunch of things which should be commanding large majorities, right, in terms of the response. And if you're Joe Biden, you might say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to run at that. And I'm going to try to score some wins early on that have big bipartisan majorities behind them. Um, and I will, I, will, I will push hard for that because the country needs it. The country needs that show of unity. They need that show of force. Um, I will say I would be mindful of the adage of being innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent, though, in the sense that um, the one thing that could stymie that 
is the sort of Republican calculation of if I withhold my cooperation, regardless of the consequences for the country, it'll look bad on Joe. And therefore, that's what I'm going to do. So what he has said is, well, I don't want to do extreme things like eliminating the filibuster. But <laughs> he actually used the word obstreperous. If the Republicans are really obstreperous, then that might be on the table, right? I, I guess the point would be to say, look, there's a credible threat that like, if you don't cooperate, there are things I'm going to have to do in order to just be able to do basic governance, right? So maybe you don't, you might not end the filibuster over like a bill to admit DC as a state, right? Which is a very, very kind of partisan thing, right? You might end the filibuster if they're, if they're saying we're not going to like pass the next recovery act. We're not going to vote for that, right? You might say that's a thing worth doing it over because that's the sort of thing you should be on board for. Um, so that's kind of one. So if, I'm, if you're Biden, that's my advice to Biden. If you're Trump, like I said, last term of office, there's a real Nixon goes to China type of opportunities here that you could, that you could have, right? Like, and by the way, the country is, is grading you on a huge curve. Like all you gotta do is like, seriously, all you gotta do is sound moderately reasonable and people will praise you. Like they'll praise you so much, right? If you say, you know what? We're gonna go for like an immigration reform bill while I'm president, because I can make it happen, because the nativists are going to trust me if I go to them with a deal and say, this is the deal, right? Um, you could say things like, I'm actually going to jettison the sort of plutocratic wing of the Republican Party. I actually think that wing of the party always has been favoring unpopular things. <laughs> um, you know, like they've been favoring, like, let's, they're, they're really focused on cutting capital gains taxes. I actually don't think that matters. Like, I think there are other things we should be doing. Like, so the populist instinct there might be a good one. And if you think about shaping the future of the Republican Party, you might try to shape it into that empty part of the matrix that you and I always talk about, Ben, of being kind of socially conservative and fiscally liberal, right? Uh, there is no such party right now. What if he, he could push the Republican Party in, in that direction, right? In terms of saying like, that's what we want to do. The last and hardest thing would be to say, okay, you say you're not a racist, prove it, right? Like, and start to kind of act in different ways because you don't need to win another election. You don't need to gin up these sorts of feelings, right? That would be the thing you do. So those, that would be my advice to the 2K. There are versions of what it looks like to unify that both of them could take on. And interestingly, either of them would be freer to take on than most presidents are able to do. So there actually is an opportunity there. Yeah, I think the thing that, the thing that you said that caught my interest for President Trump is if he wins, like embrace your inner like uh, odd odd couple ness mm -hmm. he's willing to do business on some things that like don't fit neatly into left or right boxes uh yeah. so he could really embrace that on things like like honestly on police reform or yep. um, you know like he he is somebody who by the this is this is double-edged sword but because he's he's ruling by personality by you know yeah. by his you know popularity he could pigeonhole conservatives who might not necessarily want to do it uh, and probably pull some, some Democrats with him. So I think that could be interesting. Um, you know, if, if the rhetoric matches the action, which that's the, that's the, that's going to be the challenge for him, I think. Yep. Yep. But there are lots, there are a few, I mean, if, if he comes out and says, Hey, here's a police reform bill, but I want to actually broker the likelihood of it actually happening is higher than if president Biden were trying to make it happen. Or, or you know, 
President Rubio or whoever, whoever you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think that's true. Like, cause he can bring his people along. So there are opportunities there, opportunities for a legacy opportunities for, for um, greatness. And both of them require calling forth something in you, a certain amount of restraint, a certain amount of virtue, a certain amount of character. I think that's true for either of them. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, we can pray that it would be so. <laughs> um, and um, we will be back next week uh, to talk about the more sort of nuts and bolts things. Like what would you put on the agenda for you know, the Congress? What would you actually do policy-wise um, aside from some of the fraught stuff on Supreme Court that we've been talking about this week? Um, so stay tuned for that next week. Um, Davidi, you wanna go ahead and um, pray us out? Sure. Father, we pray, give us the leaders um, that your, your grace requires rather than the leaders we deserve. Raise up, O oh Lord, shepherds for this country, uh, we pray. And uh, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give those leaders uh, wisdom, wisdom from heaven that is peaceable and pure and easily understand. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to bless us with uh, transcendent leaders who uh, unite the country, who call us to higher ideals, who, oh Lord, uh, even in your common grace, um, make us grateful for your many blessings and make us careful uh, to steward them in ways that tend to righteousness and therefore tend to exalt the nation. Uh, so grant us grace, we pray. Um, bless the country as we go through this election season. Preserve us, O oh Lord, from the evil one and preserve us, O oh Lord, from the temptations of our flesh, and uh, allow us, O oh Lord, to conduct ourselves in your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.